Imagine uh, two newcomers arriving at the door of Castlereagh Fellowship this morning. One is very well spoken, you know, speaks with a very refined uh, Northern Irish accent or English accent and is very, very well attired, very well addressed. The other has a very broad East Belfast accent and his appearance suggests that he isn't blessed with a lot of this world's goods. The first man is greeted warmly and escorted to his seat right by one of the radiators. For after all, it's a bit nippy this morning. In fact, we even asked Frances to get out of her normal seat, which is the warmest seat in the house, to accommodate our well-to-do guest. The other guy, well, he'll just have to make do by sitting by the door. Or actually, we could make him sit at one of those front middle seats because those front middle seats are, believe it or not, the coldest seats in this building. You can take that from me, for that's where I normally sit. I call it Joe's seat because it's where Joe used to sit until he had to ask to be moved because his feet were growing so, or getting so cold and he had to get in by the radiator. My imaginary scenario would be an example of partiality or favoritism. And the sin of partiality is the topic that James is dealing with um, in this morning's text. So we're into chapter 2 now of the letter of James, and we're going to read the first 13 verses. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, 
also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't show favoritism, commands James. And the word that he uses for showing favoritism is literally um, receive the face. It's the idea of showing prejudice towards a person on the basis of external appearance. And in verses 2 to 3, James gives us a specific example. And obviously, that's the example that I plagiarized for my introduction. Two men come into a church gathering. One is wearing a gold ring and is dressed in fine clothes. In James's day, it was the practice of the Roman equestrian class to wear multiple rings on their fingers. Indeed, if you wanted to create the impression you were wealthy when you weren't really, you could rent rings. And in comes a man wearing an expensive gold ring to go with his Armani suit and his Rolex watch. But the second man is attired in shabby clothes, befitting his status as one of the poor. The rich man is shown special attention. He's fawned over. He's escorted to a seat of honor, the best seat in the house, Francis's seat. It's just so good to see him in our meeting. How privileged are we? But the poor man is showing no such courtesies. You stand there out of the way, or if you have to sit, sit at my feet. This is partiality of the worst kind. And James is going to give his readers, and by extension ourselves, six good reasons why partiality, why favoritism should never be tolerated by the people of God. Number one, because it is in contradiction of what we know of God and his son. And you'll see the connection with what we have been thinking about at the breaking of bread, particularly with Ruth's prayer. It is to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that James addresses his command. Literally, the expression that James employs is the Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. And the glory here is probably best thought of the glory that Jesus Christ possesses as he sits at God the Father's right hand as co-ruler of the universe. But Jesus Christ could never be accused of siding with wealth. Jesus Christ, as we've been thinking about this morning in our time of, uh, around the table, was the most downwardly mobile of all. 
Jesus left the splendor of heaven to become one of us. He was born to humble parents, and he lived in the backwater of Nazareth of Galilee. He was the one who, during his public ministry, had no place to lay his head. He was the one who ultimately humbled himself unto death, taking the place of sinners under the curse of God. He was the one who, Paul says, was rich, but for your sakes became poor, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Jesus Christ could never be accused of partiality towards the wealthy or the important in society. Indeed, the Pharisees and the Herodians said to him, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Matthew 22, verse 16. Jesus looked at a person's heart, not their wardrobe. As Paul reminded the Colossians, there is no favoritism with him. Colossians 3, verse 25. And in this, Jesus was simply reflecting the character of God the Father. As Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 tells us, the Lord is not partial. Following his encounter with the Gentile Cornelius, Peter exclaimed, I now perceive that God shows no partiality. And Paul is emphatic with the Romans in chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. The bottom line is, there is no favoritism with our God. Therefore, there is no place for favoritism among those who claim to be the people of God, Christ's followers. Number two, second reason. Because if you show favoritism, partiality, you are assuming the position and role of judge. Verse 4. And James points to two sins that are being simultaneously committed by those who show partiality. First, they are arrogating to themselves a role that they have no right to perform. Judgment is God's prerogative, not theirs. In becoming judges between persons, they are acting as usurpers. They are placing their own standards of estimation higher than God's. But secondly, their own estimations, the way that they, <clears throat> the way that they judge people, those ways are warped, the result of what James calls evil thoughts. And you see the phrase, have you not discriminated among yourselves in verse 4? The idea there is of facing both ways, like the double-minded man that we met in James chapter 1. Whilst nominally owing allegiance to Christ, they are actually behaving by the standards of the world. They are kowtowing to worldly snobbery. So they have both got above themselves and 
acting in the role that only God can do, and they are trusting in their own deficient judgment. Third reason, because you have inverted God's order, verses 4 to verse 5a. James's readers are discriminating against the poor, yet it is the poor who have a special place in God's kingdom. Think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. In, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke 6, verse 20. Israel, of course, had been a slave people in Egypt. Yet it was Israel, a slave people, whom God chose to be a blessing to the world. Think of what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians when he declared that not many of them were of noble birth, but were lowly in station. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 26 to 28. Yet as befitting a God of perfect justice, it's the poor who have been chosen by God to be, to quote James, rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. It's as if James is exhorting his readers, will you get with God's program? Realize that in showing partiality to the rich, you are subverting God's priorities. As Alec Mateer wrote, the preponderance of the Lord's concern is shown for those who are at the bottom of the world's heap. Fourth reason, because you are acting irrationally. Verse 6. Many of James's audience, it's reckoned, were probably agricultural laborers. And as such, they would have been amongst the at least relatively poor in society of the day. And many of them, no doubt, were on the receiving end of unjust and oppressive practices by the rich. Yet the wealthy are the ones that they're falling over whenever they come into their gatherings. Exploitation of the poor was rife in James's day. Wealthy landlords were dragging the poor before the courts on charges and sometimes, you know, false charges concerning debt, rent, and property. Indeed, in James's day, there was a custom of instant arrest. If a creditor was out on the walking the streets and he spotted a debtor, a man who owed him uh, money, he could literally grab the man by the neck of his um, of his gown, and he could literally drag him then and there before the court. Moreover, it was the rich who, by their exploitative and oppressive ways were effectively slandering and blaspheming God's name. And this would be especially so if we were talking about a rich brother, you know, a fellow believer, a fellow Christian who happened to be wealthy. How illogical then 
to show preference, to show favoritism to the very people who were abusing them. Fifthly, because you are breaking God's law, verses 8 to 11. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. To show partiality to some and discriminate against others is certainly to break the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself, as referred to in verse 8. For as Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan, your neighbor is simply your fellow man. But more than this, James will not tolerate any attempt to downplay the seriousness of partiality as if it were only like a minor infraction of God's law. For God's law is an integral whole. And a transgression of just one command renders you guilty as a lawbreaker in the sight of God. No use saying that because I didn't commit the sin of adultery, I'm not a lawbreaker if you were guilty of murder. And remember again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he fairly amplified what it means to commit adultery. It's, you know, what goes on in your mind and heart, and likewise with murder. Break one command, says James, and you are guilty. You are a lawbreaker. Commit the sin of favoritism. Show partiality. You are guilty. You are a lawbreaker, period. As Kent Hughes puts it, partiality is not merely an excusable lack of courtesy, but a scandalous breach of God's law. It is a serious thing in the eyes of our God to show favoritism, to show partiality. Sixthly, because you will be judged according to how you have treated others. Verses 12 to 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged. Remember, says James, you are going to stand before the judge. And judgment without mercy will be shown to everyone who has not been merciful. And I'm reminded once again of the words of Jesus, again from the Sermon on the Mount. This time Matthew 7 verse 2. In the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And Jesus spells out the importance of being merciful in how we treat others through the telling of the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. And then again in Matthew 5 verse 7, one of the Beatitudes, where he states, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. If you're guilty of unfair discrimination in your attitudes and actions towards others, be sure that that will come back to bite you come the great day of reckoning. So those are James's six reasons that he, by, way, by, by which he exhorts his readers not to show favoritism not to show partiality.
So we come then to this morning's lessons. Beyond the obvious lesson, which is that we as believers in Castlereagh Fellowship, we ought not to show um, partiality towards people um, in our context. And if somebody does come into our building and they're very well spoken and well to do, um, we shouldn't be fawning over them. We shouldn't be giving them special attention. We shouldn't be getting Francis to get out of her seat to accommodate this um, visitor. And likewise, if somebody comes in who is not well-dressed uh, and who looks a bit the, you know, the worse for wear, we shouldn't be discriminating against that individual. And, and that exhortation not to discriminate, not to show partiality, you know, it applies to wealth, but it also applies to things like you know, how well-educated you are or your reputation um, your clothing, we've talked about, your race, your religious background. doesn't matter if you're born Muslim or Roman Catholic, whatever. It doesn't matter. Your family background, your sexual orientation, it doesn't matter. No discrimination, no partiality. So I have three such lessons each of which has to do with the adoption of a correct attitude. So number one, a correct attitude towards the poor. Apparently, Abraham Lincoln once quipped that God must be on the side of the common people because he made so many of them. And it's certainly true that the poor are disproportionately represented within the church of Jesus Christ. And certainly, you know, you think of the, where the majority of Christians today now live. Think of where the growth of the church is most rapid today. It's not in the materially wealthy West anymore. It's the relatively poor global South. It's right that we should be on the side of the poor the underprivileged, the disadvantaged, the oppressed. After all, it was God who commanded the Israelites to have a special concern for the widow, for the orphan, for the sojourner or the immigrant and the poor. But we do need to exercise some caution here. We must not assume that poverty brings with it automatic blessing. Poverty can, in some cases, be the result of laziness and irresponsibility. The Bible does not give warrant to so-called liberation theology, where social revolutionary movements, even sometimes those which are violent, which use physical violence, to pursue their goals, are lauded as God's instrument of justice and where the poor are seen as being almost universally virtuous. Likewise today, we hear an awful lot about social justice, which I mentioned in the previous talk. We hear an awful lot about privilege 
versus victimhood, about oppressors versus the oppressed. And that is actually straight out of the manual of what is called critical theory or cultural Marxism. To be a white male, particularly, evangelical Christian is to be on the side of privilege. You are the oppressor. And therefore, your voice must be silenced. On the other hand, the voice of the oppressed, the poor, the ethnic minorities, the sexual minorities, women must now be privileged. Their voice must now be heard. That's critical theory. We must not succumb to that falsehood. The reality is that we are all sinners and everyone needs God's forgiveness and salvation. That applies to rich people, yes. It applies to white males, yes. But it equally applies to the poor and other disadvantaged people. Being poor or oppressed will not by itself prepare you for heaven. Only personal repentance and faith in Christ will do that. We all stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross. Secondly, a correct attitude towards God's law. Much has been made of James's emphasis upon keeping the law and of the alleged discrepancy with what the Apostle Paul teaches on this topic. Paul famously declared that Christians are not under law but under grace, Romans 6 verse 14, whereas James exhorts, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law, verse 12 of our reading. The problem is resolved when we realize that Paul and James are referring to different functions of the law. Paul is contending against those who say, and we were dealing with this with Les this morning, those who say that keeping the law makes you right before God. No, says Paul, the law will never justify a man. As due to his fallen nature, he's incapable of perfectly keeping it. And perfection is the required standard of compliance. And on that point, James would agree, given what he has just said and what we read this morning about how the law is an integral whole. And if you fail on just one point, you're guilty of breaking it all in the sight of God. But James is dealing with with believers whose actions are not living up to their profession of faith. He's thus concerned with the role of the law in promoting holy living. To live a holy life means that we should seek to obey God's moral law. It's frankly a nonsense to say that Christians have no obligation to God's moral law. That is the error of what's called antinomianism, which Paul had absolutely no truck with. It's been pointed out that in the New Testament, 
the New Testament, there are 1,100 or so imperatives. An imperative is a command to do or don't do. There are over 1,100 imperatives in the New Testament. Guess what? That's twice as many commands as God gave Israel in the Old Covenant. Yes, it's true that we are freed from the requirements of Israel's ceremonial and civil laws, but not from the requirements of God's moral law, for the moral law is a reflection of God's holy character, and as his people we ought to want to follow in his ways. And we mustn't view God's moral law as restrictive, as crushing our freedom. Rather, obeying God's moral law is the path to true fulfillment. That's why James calls it the law that gives freedom. It's why King David could write, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts, your laws, your commands. The world views God's law as a straitjacket and as a killjoy. But we know that obeying God's moral law in the power of the Holy Spirit is the only way of living life in conformity to how our maker has designed us. And finally, a correct attitude towards judgment. As believers, we rejoice in the truth that we have been declared righteous in God's sight. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 verse 1. But that does not mean that we will not face judgment. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. Paul wrote those words to Christians. We will all have our lives assessed for purposes of eternal reward. And so as James would have it, we should take care how we live and how we relate to others, both within and outside of the body of Christ. Don't expect to be rewarded where you are guilty of discrimination and favoritism. But if you make it your practice to treat people fairly and to show mercy towards others, you can expect God to be merciful towards you. For as James exclaims in the final words of this morning's text, mercy triumphs over judgment. And on that triumphant note, I bid you farewell. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.